We started from pre-existing trust, but then we really quickly got to, this kind of comes back to that systems leadership that you mentioned a little bit, not just collaboration, but like cohesive collaboration, like the amount of communication that was going, not necessarily like in a hub and spoke, but between the different stakeholders uh, across meetings, through Slack, over email, um, you know, it really quickly was like a, a, a team effort where um, I think everybody started with that initial foot of trust, maybe a little skepticism on, can we actually do this? And then we were able to get some pretty quick wins that um, everybody then just continued to, to uh, I think, pedal to the metal on that uh, at one point. That voice was Ben Linville Engler, Chief Investment Strategist at Massachusetts Technology Collaborative. Hear about his award-winning manufacturing work in Massachusetts during COVID and how with systems leadership, each of us can help accelerate the pace of progress in regions across the country. His interview coming up next on the podcast, Manufacturing an American Century. Welcome, Americans. You're listening to the podcast, Manufacturing an American Century, with your host, Matt Bogosian. Welcome to this episode of the AMCC podcast, Manufacturing an American Century. We're excited today to be with a systems leader extraordinaire, Ben Linville Angler. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here today. Yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Uh, you know, as, as we've talked, staying very busy with all of the uh, the federal opportunities right now in manufacturing and emerging technologies. So uh, glad we could find some time to, to carve out to talk about uh, all that's going on a little bit more. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I want to get into the systems leadership and how you've been uh, helping to lead America's manufacturing renaissance from your Perch first at MIT and now at the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative in Boston. Tell us a little bit about your background, Ben. How, I'm like, how did you get to this spot, being a leader and understanding complex systems and and strengthening manufacturing? Yeah, well, I, I won't go. I won't go all the way back, which would go back to uh, <laughs> Southwest Kansas and farm country. But um, my my original background um, coming out of the University of Colorado was mechanical and biomedical engineering. And when I first went into industry was with a medical device company called Applied Medical, makes surgical access devices and instruments. And part of the reason I was interested in joining them was they had a significant manufacturing footprint, a very vertically integrated company, which is a little bit of an odd duck for uh, a US-based company at the time, but specifically a medical device company based in Orange County, California. Uh, And for me coming in as a freshly minted engineer, getting into some product design, it was really eye-opening to be able to quickly close the loop on the the decisions I was making to design products for surgeons, but how those would ultimately impact how the product would get made, how quickly we could actually get parts turned around, what the cost of those were going to be. And that really, I think, for me, accelerated my professional development. Um, And during my time there, I had the opportunity to help build out uh, help the company transition from mechanical focused devices to uh, embedded systems and really got into embedded electronics and software, um, which opened up a whole nother door of manufacturing and complex systems, uh, as well as a lot of quality and regulatory um, control policies and other things. Um, and for me, 
what I really started to learn at that point was, you know, there's, there's the technology component of this, there's the product component of this, there's the company component of this, but there's a lot of that organizational people aspect of it. And there's interconnectedness between all those things. Now I'm using vocabulary that uh, I didn't have at the time. Uh, And part of that comes from, you know, after my time at Applied Medical, I was in the Southern California office for about seven years, then in the Netherlands for a few to help build out engineering, manufacturing and product development there. But I I left industry as a VP of product development engineering to go into a mid-career professional program at MIT called System Design and Management, a joint engineering business program at a high level systems thinking meets systems engineering. And for me, you know, I'd, I'd had really great experience for t- about 10 years with one company. Uh, I had built and launched embedded medical electrical equipment, um, you know, highly FDA regulated. I knew a lot of the practices around um, systems design and engineering. But what I really was interested in is, is getting deeper into where did this come from? Where else can we take it? Uh, and really what I came away with from two years in that program was not so much more tools necessarily or frameworks. I did get those, but different ways of thinking and actually really digging into the value of, of those relationships and, and um, aspects between um, people, technologies, products in the community. So I can maybe pa- pause there, but the, the, the next foray into this is then kind of my introduction, more deeper, deeper introduction into Massachusetts. And it, it um, really starts with COVID-19. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, uh, Ben. And that's how you and I came into contact, right? So AMCC is representing all these regions uh, trying to strengthen their manufacturing ecosystem. COVID hits and we have this crisis uh, you know, in uh, PPE and 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 all kinds of gear, uh, and regions around the country are trying to respond in real time, and um, you know, thanks thanks to uh, you know our our uh, network and whatnot, I uh, got introduced to you, uh, and uh, was learning about the um, the the applied uh, systems uh, leadership that you were uh, a part of in Massachusetts. Tell us a little bit about the story about when COVID hits, what's happening there and how you applied these, you know, complex systems thinking to uh, solving a a real-time problem. Yeah. And so for me, it actually started, I'd say around January, 2020. And part of this was at that point I had, I had already finished, my, my graduate degree at MIT, and I'd gotten recruited into the industry co-director role for that same program, System Design and Management. And um, while at MIT for roughly those, you know, at that point, I think about four, four years, um, I'd, I'd found that the, the ecosystem at MIT was, was missing some, what I felt like critical pieces of medical device product development, specifically around entrepreneurship and starting companies. So I had just started and ran a short course in January of 2020 called Medical Device Product Development in Combination with Quality and Regulatory Strategy. And a lot of that was layering in um, how to think about complex systems design and really bridging my industry experience within my academic experience. Uh, ran that course January 2020. We had about 60 students from all across campus. Uh, first time we did it, I was really happy with how it, how it came out. And fast forward two months, and when COVID starts hitting, um, and, and Boston was one of the one of the places in the U.S. that maybe was getting hit pretty intensely right away. 
um, I started getting a lot of inbound from folks that had taken the class from my other parts of my network in Boston saying, hey, should we make X? Or if we're doing this, what do you think about this approach to it? And I, I was, you know, really at the time kind of blown away with how quickly people were picking up to, to start to think about how to help. But two, also concerned with, you know, if you haven't made med devices, there's, you know, no matter how well intended, a real opportunity to potentially create more harm than good. And uh, I started getting engaged with a few different community-led groups around how to convert different types of masks into PPE and was really exercising that course that I taught on repeat, um, starting to track all of what the FDA was doing for their different emergency youth authorizations and other um, documentation. And I think it was around March, March 20th, March 19th, um, I serendipitously, you know, I, I, two days earlier called a, an MIT mechanical engineering faculty member that I met on Slack through one of these community groups. Uh, and he then introduced me to this first call of the, uh, the Massachusetts Manufacturing Emergency Response Team, which uh, at the time, Governor Baker and his administration were looking for ways in which they could support our health systems in the state of Massachusetts who were rapidly running out of supplies. So they asked our manufacturers what they could do to help. Um, and I like to say that, you know, our state, just like every else, everywhere else was caught flat footed, but we at least had our shoes on. And what I mean by had our shoes on is that and this was my introduction to a lot of the advanced manufacturing community in Massachusetts. We had a convened body called the uh, Advanced Manufacturing Collaborative, which the governor had established to help shape the strategy around advanced manufacturing in the state. So there was established trust between manufacturers and the administration. We had a Center for Advanced Manufacturing uh, as part of the agency I work for now, the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative for Economic Development to support growth in the sector. And we also had um, a history of, uh, through that, that Center for Advanced Manufacturing, specifically around an innovation fund in funding projects in alignment with the Manufacturing USA Institutes which brought to the table uh, AFOA, the Advanced Functional Fabrics of America organization that had a pretty uh, national reach and network. And all of that came together really quickly in, in March, March 2020. The plan was, let's make as much FDA compliant gear as we can with our manufacturers. Uh, we were targeting in like four to six weeks because that's when the peak of the first wave in COVID was going to hit. And really just started running at a state level, medical device product development lifecycle methodology. But instead of saying I have this person or this division and a company as a resource, it's now all of the organizations in the state that we can connect with and reach out to. Um, and I think as you experienced with COVID, uh, barriers to collaboration were like below the floor. Everybody you know, basically said, I'm in, what do you need help with? And we were very quickly stitching together not just new supply chains, but new value chains, people that were designing PPE that we were getting to um, folks that could actually make it. We were standing up different testing capabilities then to help uh, those manufacturers down select which uh, types of things to move forward with for certification and actively like tracking all the FDA compliance work at the time. Um, it was a very, very busy period. So if I fast forward, to say November of 2020, 
What came out of this effort and through a few waves of COVID is we helped over 50 manufacturers pivot operations to produce FDA compliant gear. That's uh, face masks, surgical masks, uh, respirators, different types of isolation gowns. We had a really big effort on 3D printed nasal pharyngeal swabs, hand sanitizers, a whole, whole host of different types of uh, medical countermeasures. And I, I emphasize they were all uh, FDA compliant. We were tracking all of the testing requirements that they were putting out. In total, from a volume standpoint, and as far as we can tell, it was maybe the, the, the most successful state-based manufacturing response by volume and like type of gear, was about 15 million items of PPE from April, from March 2020 to November 2020. And for context, FEMA Region 1 during that time delivered about 15 or about 20 million items of PPE to all the New England states. So we were on, on scale with what FEMA was delivering. But we also helped um, produce about a little over 10 million test swabs nationally with uh, five industrial 3D printing company, uh, 3D printing um, vendors. And it was, so it was a very active time. And, and we can dig into sort of the, the elements of like the multi-stakeholder aspect of it, how we're talking between health health systems and translating that to engineers. Um, there's a whole host of anecdotes to go into that. But for me, it was it was really this unique experience that in many ways, I really hope I never have to do again. <laughs> but translating, you know, my professional and academic experience into this complex systems crisis response. Uh, and I came out of it with what I, you know, sort of talk about is like this ecosystem engineering, where it's not just about like building the ecosystem, but how do you actually exercise it and leverage it to to accomplish things. And we had a really clear mission um, for this manufacturing response. You talked about trust uh, in pre-existing relationships and state investment in um, kind of the infrastructure of those relationships. Say a little bit more about uh, how that uh, enabled your manufacturing ecosystem to um to produce those outcomes, you know, at a rapid pace, because you look, you look at, uh, you know, we're, we're prioritizing, you know, six manufacturing industries around the country. You're talking about one of them, health. We're going to increasingly face challenges in the, the, the health, you know, uh, manufacturing uh, area. Uh, you know, we can predict these problems and 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 respond to them, but we need we need an ecosystem of support that can kind of um, diagnose challenges before they're in crisis mode. So, yeah, speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So on the on the trust element, I think there are a couple pieces to this. One, it wasn't just the trust between our government and our manufacturers, but also our health systems, our academic partners. Massachusetts has had this sort of model playbook for um, technology and innovation, economic development, where it's it's really about how do we bring together industry, government, and academia. And there's a lot of different programs around ways in which we do that. Um, but health systems in Massachusetts, 11 out of the top 18 employers of the state are health systems. It's a really critical part of our economy. Uh, and that's where, you know, we had high level, you know, um, physicians, uh, chiefs of general surgery from hospitals that you know, the governor basically was able to say, you should go talk to this group who's trying to help you make stuff. And they trusted that enough to say, all right, I'll show up. Then it was on us to, to like help, you know, help them know what we could do. Um, but I think that's also then where on the other side of it, there had been investment in like workforce training. We had been doing this M2I2 program 
the, the Manufacturing Institute Aligned Investment Program, uh, as well as various other uh, engagements and convenings around advanced manufacturing where there was, there was trust to know that it's well-intended, relationships exist, so you're not introducing people necessarily from ground zero. Uh, and then also the academic partners that came to the table as well help to connect those dots or have other capabilities that we could bring in. Um, I think one of the things that I would say, looking back at why I feel like we were successful is that we really anchored our effort on two, two key things. We were looking at manufacturers that already had existing capabilities, given the time frame that we were in. Again, we were when we first started, it was how much can we make in four to six weeks? So we didn't have time to like get new equipment necessarily. The other part of it was we had to make a really key decision early on of are we going to be are we going to be looking at new novel types of products, which a lot of those were designed during this time, or do we just need more of what we know works? So we focused on we need more of what we know works. So we we opted for um, not interjecting new novel um, necessarily new novel products right at the beginning, uh, and I think. Those, those decisions were kind of come together as a group. And, and we started from pre-existing trust, but then we really quickly got to, this kind of comes back to that systems leadership that you mentioned a little bit, not just collaboration, but like cohesive collaboration, like the amount of communication that were, was going, not necessarily like in a hub and spoke, but between the different stakeholders, uh, across meetings, through Slack, over email, um, you know, it really quickly was like a, a team effort where um, I think everybody started with that initial foot of trust, maybe a little skepticism on, can we actually do this? And then we were able to get some pretty quick wins that um, everybody then just continued to, to uh, I think, pedal to the metal on that uh, at one point. So you're at MIT, you are involved in this rapid response to a crisis uh, in, uh, in, you know, because of our weakness uh, in our manufacturing ecosystem. How how did that inform your transition to uh, really an economic development uh, organization where you are now? Uh, your perch, uh, perch at uh, Massachusetts uh, Technology Collaborative. Yeah, so this is this is probably still going to be a little bit informed by like hindsight narrative. You know, I don't think all these things mm-hmm. are as uh, strategic uh, in in the doing as they are in the the telling. But coming out of that manufacturing emergency response. Effort. I, I was recognized at MIT with um, an award that they they give for high levels of community service. Uh, it's the Sean Collier Medal, which is given in uh, in memory of Sean Collier, who uh, had lost his life during the Boston Marathon bombing. And I think through this whole effort for me, you know, I was really, you know, and reflecting a little bit afterwards, thinking about you know this this whole systems approach and the community aspect to this, because in many ways, while during COVID everything went remote, I felt more connected to my community in and around Massachusetts than I had for the first, you know, say four or five years that I lived there. And most of this was just through meeting people through Zoom or over Slack or email. So for me, what I found was I, I was really interested in this like community connected aspect of, of the work, which I was really finding um, quite compelling. And so when I, when I got back to what I would say is like my normal job from being mostly on loan to the state, 
Uh, and then we actually went back into the office in, in person. I, I felt like in some ways I was stepping back both in space and in time where for me, I'd gone through this experience and I had, you know, a lot of personal growth through that. And I think it changed a lot of people's perspective that were on part of this effort. And so I, I decided I wanted to look for something a little bit different. And I first reached out to the executive director of Mass Tech or the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative, Carolyn Kirk, who had worked with a lot on this, um, really to get her thoughts on some interesting companies or organizations that I could talk to about what my next steps might look like. Mass Tech has a pretty interesting vantage point as a quasi-state economic development authority. And we spoke um, a couple times and then a few weeks later, she came back and she says, hey, I'm working on this new role at Mass Tech, uh, this chief investment strategist and program executive. And we may not have had the name at the time. She said, I'd really like to get your thoughts on what you think this role could look like. And if you're interested, I'd love for you to apply. And so fast forward a little bit. Um, it actually, you know, I was, I was looking at, do I go back into industry or there's some other things to do at MIT that are more manufacturing related but decided to, to shift into this economic development effort. Uh, and part of it was, you know, at, at Mass Tech, we have that Center for Advanced Manufacturing that I spoke about. But at a high level, our mission is to strengthen the competitiveness of the technology and innovation economy within the state. And yes, that's the technologies and the things that we make or the companies, but it's also about people. So it has that community connected aspect to it. Um, I am also a engineer. I would say I'm a perpetually recovering systems engineer most of, most of the time. Um, and so I like technologies and all of that, you know, product development. And so the, the portfolio or the breadth of things that we get engaged in at Mass Tech is just, it's fascinating and sometimes overwhelming, but just, it keeps, it keeps me very curious. And we have, we have five divisions. We have a broadband Institute that's doing a lot on communications, connectivity, digital uh, equity, and digital literacy. We have our Center for Advanced Manufacturing, which we've talked a little bit about. We have our Mass Cyber Center, which right now does a lot of work focused on um, resiliency with municipalities, but also starting to get into health systems and manufacturer support. We have our eHealth Institute, which does a lot of work in digital health, um, uh, economic development, uh, aging, and caregiving. And then we have uh, a division called the Innovation Institute, which is focused a lot on emerging technology cluster development. We have a lot of that in Massachusetts from the great academic institutions and federal labs and startups. And so there's all sorts of emerging technologies, manufacturing technologies, defense technologies that we engage with, with stakeholders across multiple different layers. And so for me, this role that I'm in now enables me to directly, you know, cut across a lot of sectors and technologies, which is sort of that complex systems aspect to it. I can leverage a lot of what I've gained from being an engineer in product development, like manufacturer practitioner in industry. Like I know a lot of the, the life cycles, um, you know, understanding not just about the, the, the initial technology, but how do you actually refine it into something that's going to be useful um, and then I, I honestly think a lot of my role is I translate between the technologists, now government, uh, other industry partners, academic partners, defense security partners, community members. So I've had a lot of different experiences in my career thus far that 
helped me to like bridge a lot of the language gap. And I think that this is back to, you know, my experience going through MIT as a student. I knew a lot of like systems design. I didn't have the words to to like adequately communicate it. And I feel like now I have that and I can bring that to this role and the work that we're doing. Yeah. And, and, uh, you do a good job of it. We were lucky enough to have an a- AMCC roadshow visit, uh, up, uh, with you, uh, and learning about, uh, you know, how you're applying complex system science, uh, to regional, uh, economic development in manufacturing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we're sharing those best practices, you know, around the country as we are, uh, best practices that we're, we're learning about from other regions. You know, Ben, we had um, Don Graves, the Deputy Secretary of Commerce, um, on our podcast uh, talking about this uh, era's, uh, you know, industrial policy, something that, that uh, the federal government has, has gotten into, you know, shaping, shaping the future uh, uh, with federal interventions. You know, we had ARPA, we had the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, um, the Chips and Science Act, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, and so on. Um, Don spoke about the importance of implementation <laughs> with regional leaders in public and private sectors, you know, taking these interventions, which is a good to have, right? Um, but adding to them with, with state, local, public, private sector, you know, regionally relevant interventions that, to help, uh, you know, strengthen the, the manufacturing ecosystem, you know, how do, you know how do you see the importance of these these uh, these kinds of federal intervention interventions to Massachusetts, New England, across the country? Yeah, give us your take on that. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know the the body of strategy and legislation and now funding that's coming out of the federal government. I think is in many ways like once in a generational. You might call it unprecedented. I think in my lifetime, I haven't seen anything like this. Um, not the oldest person. So there's maybe other times in our nation's history that you could equate. Um, and I think, you know, your question on what does it mean for, for, for Massachusetts and the country, like any good systems engineer, uh, you've got to read the requirements documents. And we've got a lot of these right now. You mentioned like the Chips and Science Act, um, which has, you know, enumerated at least 10 key emerging technologies for the country. Uh, we have potential authorized funding for our Manufacturing USA institutes on the plus science side, which have a key list of their own advanced manufacturing technologies that they're pursuing. At the same time that all of this is coming out, we had uh, in February of 2022, the Defense Department put out a a document called the uh, Technology Vision for an Era of Competition, which is like 13 or 14 key defense technologies that they're tracking or that they're interested in, in further developing. Um, and then we also had coming out of COVID with the Biden administration, uh, a series of critical supply chain reports. Uh, and I have a toddler at home. So I either read after, after COVID and reading FDA documents, it was on to reading all of these federal policies, but they're all great documents independently. But what I've gone through is how do you connect those dots quite literally? And, where are there overlaps in those emerging defense or manufacturing technologies? What are those critical, um, those critical things that we want to be building and making here in the U S and what are the inputs to those or the risks? A lot of it, things like chips, you know, or you know, microelectronics or workforce. 
Um, but when you look at a technology like I'll use robotics or an automation, robotics is a critical emerging technology that can impact a lot of sectors. It's a critical advanced manufacturing technology. We look at like the ARM Institute and its focus there. But then it's also a critical defense technology for autonomous systems and, and other things. And so then how do we then think about how does how is this impact Massachusetts? We we have this moment where there's this tight coupling of economic and national security, and we have funding coming behind this. So not everything that the federal government is is interested in or pushing or, or pursuing in this necessarily aligns directly with the economic development strategy of Massachusetts or maybe our strengths, but it does align with quite a few. And so what we're looking at is how do we best position ourselves as this funding or these programs come out or as you know our past relationships with different agencies, we can we can step in to say, how do we help? Now, during that time, during this initial time where we've had some of the chips program uh, programs come out for things like the DoD microelectronics Commons, we are leveraging our convening power as a state agency to pull together broad coalitions to help put forward really strong proposals for some of these things where we feel like we have, uh, strengths that can be leveraged uh, to support, you know, the national mission. Um, but then there's other areas or other proposals where we think we have a compelling need also from like a place-based economic development standpoint. A lot of folks look at Massachusetts from the outside and say, oh, you guys are fine. Like when things are measured, we often come out as, you know, I'm going to say number one on the podcast because it's it's often number one as the highest innovation capacity in the U.S. or in North America. And that's true when you just draw the borders of Massachusetts, but not everywhere is like Boston and Cambridge. We have places in central Massachusetts or places in Western Massachusetts where we also need um, interventions to help support economic development and opportunity. So we're looking at all of these, all of these different programs or funding sources to say, Hey, can we help meet the national mission? But are there also these compelling opportunities for us to then satisfy our mission as a state where we're trying to strengthen the competitiveness of the tech and innovation economy in Massachusetts, not just in Boston and Cambridge, but across the Commonwealth. Um, so there is this like, how do you align these different levels, right? We've talked at different times around the local, the state, the regional and the national. And I will tell you right now, you know, and if anybody's seen the movie, everything, everywhere, all at once, I have a slide that I call everything, everywhere, all at once, because we, we are tracking all of these different technologies and opportunities, and we have a case to, to put in strong proposals for many of them. What the challenge that we see on some of these things, like the, the critical aspect of talent and workforce, is you have overlapping programs and objectives from the Department of Defense or the Department of Commerce or the Department of Energy, and they're all really great, strong programs. But at the state level or the local level, for us to implement on these things. It's not necessarily that we would implement manufacturing for microelectronics just for DOD or just for commerce or batteries just for energy. Like it, for us, it has to be a level of, of efficiency and like organization where it, it how, how do we connect all of these things on the ground? Um, and I think that's where there's this sort of middle layer of we have the strategy, we have the funding, we have the vision. We're in this implementation now and 
you know, there is a lot of, there are a lot of these programs out there. And I know that the different folks at DOD and commerce and NSF are talking to each other, but they also define region differently in each of these opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this comes back to like the words matter and vocabulary matters because in some region is a metropolitan statistical area and others region is multi-state and others, you know, region may be the whole Northeast, you know, eight state uh, region or coalition that we're running. Uh, so it's very complex. Uh, and then how you track and trace and, you know, do metrics for effectiveness. And that's a whole nother can of worms. Yeah, no. And, and that's why, you know, it's, it's uh, so critical you're in this space, Ben, because you can bring kind of the underlying science of complex systems uh, to be applied. I mean, you know, AMCC, we try to, you know, help regional leaders, um, Kind of understand the complex playing field. We 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 do that, um, you know, kind of structuring like with three different lenses. Um, you know, one is around priority manufacturing industries. You know, your experience with health is one of them, but the others are defense and energy, transportation, agriculture, and IT. You know, in those in those supply chain documents, you know, that you talked about, that helps us. You know, get folks to focus on particular priority industries. A second lens is we work through is the ecosystem of support within a region. We call that the big six, which includes one of the big six is workforce, right? A critical uh, component part. And, but then the third lens, and this is what I want to talk a little bit more about uh, with you, is is around you know having the right targets uh, for what we want to achieve, the goals you know for the American project. We want to have a sustainable society, uh, and so we need sustainable development, uh, which is economic success for sure, but. It's also, uh, you know, for all Americans, um, you know, uh, social equity and environmental sustainability and security. That's what we consider the component parts. So that's the, the third lens that we use in our work. And that takes people. <laughs> that takes people, you know, being systems leaders um, across the country, um, implementing this stuff, weaving it together in a regionally uh, relevant way. Um and and so we talk about this thing, systems leadership. I don't know if you saw just recently, um, the um, the entire uh, government of the United Kingdom has adopted systems leadership um, as a training mechanism for all of their civil servants and leaders. Um, you know, basically training them in systems thinking uh, and giving them practical advice for for, uh, you know, carrying out systems approaches to kind of shift the culture and the ways in which they work. Um, My question to you, you know, how do we train more of us (laughs) to be better systems leaders to to implement these, all of these various public and private interventions and more, um, you know, uh, toward better outcomes? Yeah. So as you're talking through that, I have a couple thoughts and I'll I'll try to string them together in in a coherent way. So the, the first one, as it relates to like the system side of things, I think coming out of, you know, COVID and what's come out of that from these different supply chain challenges is a lot of, a lot of systems thinking is the value that's, that exists in relationships or connections between things. And we have seen uh, through these supply chain disruptions, like the importance of the chain, the connection between manufacturers and other suppliers that when it breaks, there's a problem. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, uh, 
we, we, we experience that same thing, you know, in, in a little bit more personal way, like when your electricity goes out, right? You never thought about the connection from your light switch all the way back through the transmission lines, you know, past your house out to the power generation plant. But then all of a sudden it becomes like very, very, it's very, went from low friction to super high friction. Same with your water or other things. So we already like have these ways in which we experience these connections. And I think this is where, and I'm, I, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of value in, in like there's a design thinking framework, but I think sometimes we overuse the term human centered because a lot of what we're talking about is human connected, community connected, right? Coming back to that is that all of these things are, are connected. And I think public policy is one of those things where it's not just the first order effect that you may have to think about. It's those second order or third order. So part of this, and you know, we've had conversations during your, your, your roadshow where you guys came here is yes, it's identifying the stakeholders, but it's identifying what are the relationships between them? What value am I providing? What benefit or at, at what cost, right? What's the exchange? Is it one direction? Is it two direction? So sometimes just mapping that out, that's honestly like some, one of the things that we start with, a lot that I brought into to Mass Tech is how do we actually visualize the, that stakeholder value network, and that's part of telling the story. You were talking about you know the the language, um, you know um, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist um, and writer. He he recently posted a piece about our American story in the 21st century and how we need a better one. Um, you know, that gives people a sense of coherence and belonging that we're marching in a clear direction toward concrete goals. How do we, how do we better craft that story? I mean, I think one of these things is, is part of it is helping, helping individuals or firms, one, get a sense of where they fit into the bigger picture, the bigger system. So that's where those stakeholder mapping exercises can be helpful. Or as we're talking about things like chips and science, if I'm a manufacturer that makes precision components for a company that makes high value equipment, lithography equipment or something that is then going into these next generation fab facilities that might be in Arizona or Ohio, like how do you help, how do you help that manufacturer that's doing those precision metal components understand and recognize that they're part of this whole effort? Right. And so you do have to follow those connections and sometimes kind of deep. Um, I think the other part of this that's, and this is really hard that even, you know, I, I'm trained in systems design and systems engineering and complex systems. Understanding and being thoughtful around the time component of this. A lot of times we'll talk about form and function in systems. What's the, what's the verb, like the action, the function that you're doing. And then what does it look like? The formal aspects of it. The, 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 the timing component or what I sometimes say is the frequency is really is really critical because right now as we're talking about if I say like chips and science on chips, a lot of those programs are very urgent, leveraging our strengths to to quickly start to maybe turn the trend on our, our semiconductor production capabilities in the country. On the plus science side of things, the programs have been geared more towards uh, equity and inclusion from a regional standpoint. Now, if I look at the technology and innovation ecosystem where I'm at in Massachusetts, or we'll say Boston and Cambridge, just for comparison's sake, to where I grew up in Southwest Kansas. I grew up literally, it's on a road called County Road X. Didn't have a name, it was X. 
Um, <laughs> I, I found out I found out in 2018 the Washington Post did a study on the the most remote towns from a metropolitan area of a thousand people in the U.S. and Holcomb, Kansas, the town I grew up in, was number eight. My family's farm, where I grew up the first four years of my life, it's like 30 to 45 minutes outside of that town. So very remote. Doesn't mean that Holcomb, Kansas, or these other communities can't or shouldn't be participating in this, but expectations on the time or resources that it may take for them to get there could be different. Uh, you know, we have, like I said, for COVID, part of the, our ability to react and respond quickly was because we, quote, had our shoes on. Well, how do we help other places get their shoes on too, right? It's not that they're going to start, if we have another COVID crisis, start in the exact same place that we do, but they need to have those right elements in order to be able to do that. Um, and I do think this comes down to, to, to metrics and some of the work that we've done with the Department of Defense Manufacturing um, Technology Division on, on workforce training and manufacturing technicians training in community colleges is a lot of understanding like the ecosystem or the stakeholders that we have in our state. It's not so much that like what we do here should just be copy pasted elsewhere, but how do you actually think about like a regional readiness assessment? How do you localize what we're doing and not just say, take this curriculum because you have different stakeholders, you have different incentive structures in those local regions. Um, but some of that is like, you have to, you have to actually uncover what those are, which is a lot of that great work that you, you guys are doing that we've talked about. Yeah. And, and, um, and there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about it. Uh, we're, we're starting to get our arms around what are the, you know, key component parts of a thriving, uh, you know, community and, and region. Why is this, this kind of work so rewarding to you, Ben? I think, you know, if I go back to when I was describing my time in industry and that, that learning curve, I, I've, I found I'm very driven by learning, you know, and I think, some folks will use the term like an entrepreneurship, like fail, fail fast. But I think I try to take the positive view on that is how do you learn quickly? Same, same process, right? You have a hypothesis, you test it, you get your outcome and you, you work through that uh, and continue to learn. And I think this is where my experience in industry uh, really shaped, you know, my, some of my thinking coming into this, where the more that we can do, and it's not just supply chain, right? I, when I say value chain, it's the research design development through manufacturing commercialization and out into the economy. The more we can couple all of that, it's not like a single learning curve. Like there's a lot that goes into that, but the more feedback loops that we can create along that value chain, the more innovation opportunities we have control over here in the US. And I think in a lot of instances by by breaking the front end of the value chain, the design side, from some of that manufacturing side, we've lost out on the opportunity to not just innovate in the products and the design and the design tools, but to innovate on the equipment and how we make things and continue to engage that side of the workforce to participate in this innovation aspect of it. I think this is where, you know, we, we see, we're seeing more of this now. And if you look at like additive manufacturing, we have a pretty mm -hmm. strong growth of additive manufacturing companies here in Massachusetts and in the US. And that that equipment is in the way in which you're actually um, leveraging advanced material science with application processes just continues to evolve at a very rapid pace because we're doing a lot of it in close proximity together here uh, in the US in Massachusetts and other places. 
And that's exciting. I mean, with this uh, kind of strategic complex systems approach, um, we're seeing more and more of that kind of success around the country. Before we let you go, Ben, uh, you know, any any final uh, messages to uh, to regional leaders around the country, you know, that are that are doing the hard, good hard work of uh, weaving together, you know, uh, their their own formula for for uh, regional and national success uh, in manufacturing. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't want folks to to take away from this like, oh, again, that whole like Massachusetts is fine, we're doing okay, we're learning and working on this the same way everybody else is. So we're as interested in what you in- uncover, whether it's in this podcast or in the work that you're doing on the on the big six. And you know, if there are you know models or efforts that folks are doing in other parts of the country that are really working well, like we're interested in seeing how can we maybe localize that for what we're doing here. And I think this comes back to, you know, yes, we're competing as a state, but we're wanting to do also our part of how do we do this as a as a country. How do we help create economic opportunity and economic futures for the folks in and around the U.S.? Uh, and so we want to collaborate as well, um, as much as we can uh, on these efforts. And so as you're uncovering things or if people hear this podcast and say, hey, I'd like to, you know, look Ben up and have a conversation, like, let's let's do that. You know, whereas there's, there's community at all these different levels, right? And we're only as strong as the dots that we connect in my mind. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the creativity in this can come from. Well, no surprise, uh, Ben, why you won the Collier Medal. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, your continuing uh, leadership as uh, Chief Investment Strategist and Program Executive at Mass Tech. Uh, ben Linville Angler, thanks for being on the podcast, Manufacturing an American Century. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. You can learn more about AMCC by joining our weekly mailing list at AmericanMCC.org backslash subscribe. If you're a manufacturer, economic development professional, workforce and trading person, capital provider, or work in any field critical to American manufacturing, send us a note. We'd love to hear about progress from your part of the ecosystem and join us on our Monday calls. The next episode of this podcast, Manufacturing in American Century, will be coming out soon. So in the meantime, spread the word by sharing about AMCC and the podcast on your Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Manufacturing in American Century is available on Spotify and all major podcast platforms. Thanks for our production partners, AMCC Operations Director David Van Sicklin and Mr. Mike McCallan from Podcasting for Associations. That's it for now. I'm Matt Bogosian with you, Manufacturing in American Century. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man.